Welcome to Reception Insider. My name is Kathy Back. I'm the Faculty Manager of the RACGP Tasmania Faculty. And I'm Ann Davis. I'm Faculty Manager with New South Wales and ACT Faculty. And our podcast topic today is a continuation of the accreditation series. We're in the process of going through Standard 1, which is on communication. And we are today talking about Criterion 1.2, which is on telephone and electronic communications. So why is this so important? I'm sure you all jumping up and down with your answers. Effective communication with patients via telephone and electronic communication, for example, emails and text messages, ensures that patients can contact the practice when they need to. Patients can make appointments and receive other information in a timely fashion and urgent inquiries are dealt with in a timely and medically appropriate way. So that's what they're the outcomes we want from this particular criterion, aren't they? So thinking about meeting this criterion, communication by telephone, one really valuable thing to remember to do is if you're taking a call and you need to put the caller on hold, please, before you do that, first ask if it is an emergency. Now, often our telephone systems will have that pre-recorded message saying, if this is an emergency, please hang up and dial triple zero. But if you're talking to someone and haven't quite got into the conversation, so you're not knowing what they're asking them just yet, ask them, is this an emergency? And if a member of the practice team provides information, such as test results to a patient by telephone, really important that they ensure that the patient is correctly identified before they give the information so that the patient confidentiality is not compromised. And Cathy, I think it's three identifies are the standard, isn't it? It is. My preference is their name. Then I actually ask their address and I do that because it's one of those things that it's really important to know what the address is for a patient if you have to send an ambulance there or a registered post. And then my third favourite is their telephone number. Again, because that's information we need to keep so that we can get in contact with them in emergencies or important situations. There are other identifiers such as date of birth, if you are using patient healthcare record numbers and sometimes gender, if that's something you've recorded as identified by the patient themselves. But Cathy, tell me about Medicare numbers. Well, it's interesting, Anne, because yes, people might think that their Medicare number is an approved identifier. However, it's not. And when you realise that Medicare numbers are not unique, some people may have more than one Medicare number because they're members of more than one family and are on multiple cards. A classic example of this is I still have my youngest daughter, who is a doctor herself now, on my Medicare card. And clearly she has another Medicare card. And she's married since, so she even has another name. But she still sits on my Medicare card. And it's also worthwhile remembering that some Australian residents and visitors may not have a Medicare card. Yes, of course. So Medicare cards are not really great identifiers. So just thinking about how the receptionist can support a practice manager with accreditation, from what we've just been talking about, it's making sure you know what your practice's preferred identifiers are. I mean, we've said the ones that we like, but each practice will have their own preference for identifiers and making sure that that's what we use. 
The other thing I think is worth pointing out, if someone telephones and you ask if it's an emergency and they say, yes, it is an emergency, you need to get their telephone number of where they are at the moment. Good point. And the address of where they are, because they may not be at home. So it's important that you, while they're talking, you get that information because say they then keeled over or something happened, you know at least where they were and what the telephone number that they're using is. So if you have to send an ambulance out, you're not sending it to their home and only to find they're at the shops. So I think things like that are really important as well. They're things that we often don't think about, but you know, could make a huge difference to an outcome. So when we're thinking about communicating by electronic means, there's a number of things that if the practice does choose to communicate with patients electronically that we have to comply with. Kathy, would you want to walk us through? There's quite a list of them, isn't there? There is, there is. So firstly, you need to adhere to the Australian Privacy Principles, the Privacy Act of 1988, and any state-specific laws. Golly, so I think our practice managers will be <laughs> delighted yes. to give the receptionists lots and lots of paperwork there. But I suspect <laughs> that our practice managers will give them the overview and refer them to the detail as Correct. required. Yes. You need to also understand your practice policy on what content the team can and cannot send during electronic communication. For an example, your practice might require that sensitive information only be communicated face-to-face by a medical practitioner or a nurse or another appropriate health professional unless there is an exceptional circumstance and that this information must not be sent via an email. And I think each practice would have their own list of exceptional circumstances as well. So making sure that as a receptionist that those are known as well as complied with. It's also important to let the patients know that there are risks associated with some methods of electronic communication and that their privacy and confidentiality may be compromised. Emails and faxes particularly are certainly not fail-safe and there are some risks associated with that. Good point. Kathy. just like you were saying, getting the phone number of where the patient is when it's perhaps an emergency, confirming emails if we are sending by electronic means, I think is really important because people do change their emails. So getting the current one. Or have multiple email addresses yes. and maybe use one more than others. Or have a group one. I find that with the doctors. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's also very important to obtain consent from the patient before sending any health information to the patient electronically. So also be mindful that consent is implied if the patient initiates electronic communication with the practice. Yes. And I think too, Cathy, sometimes if patients do want something emailed, having them send that initiating email, yes, it can, you know, it helps with the consent, but it also means that it's much better at keeping the email address correct because you just hit the reply. Absolutely. It's so easy to make a little mistake in an email. I'm sure we've all done that many times. Are those emails, can we save them into the patient file at all? Is that possible? Maybe PDF them and have them go in that way? I think you probably could. I mean, at least you could copy and paste them in, I would imagine. Yeah, that's a good idea. So I think, yeah, it is important to do that sort of thing. And every practice will be different there as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also important to remember to avoid sending any information that is promoting a product or 
or preventative healthcare because the patients can interpret this as an advertisement and really it's not ideal for your practice to be doing that. And it's also not the reason for which we're collecting the information and I suspect it's outside the regulations and legislation. Yeah. So if your patient does allow patients to contact the practice by email, there are a couple of things that we have to inform them. Is that right, Cathy? It is. We need to let them know how long it should be until they can expect a response and that they shouldn't use the emails to contact the practice in the case of an emergency. So emails are used to conduct regular communication. Anything urgent needs to be done by a telephone. And again, receptionist supporting their manager making sure that those responses are within the time frame that we've said that we're going to respond to. Correct. So now we're going to move to informing the clinical team of communication. So all messages from patients to patients and about patients must be added and become part of the patient's healthcare record, which is what we've just talked about. But I guess there are some other things as well that we need to make sure that we're aware of that we have practice policies on. So as a receptionist, I need to ensure that I understand these policies and procedures, but also just make sure that I actually use them. So the first thing is how the message is communicated how messages are recorded, how to ensure that the message given to the intended person and what to do if the intended person is absent and how to ensure the practitioners respond to messages in a timely manner. So this is all about the internal messages. So yeah. it's, it's really how are we doing it, how are we recording it, how do we make sure the person's getting it and then what do we do if that person's not available. So that's really important to understand. It is, Anne, and I think it's also very important that whatever we've done in response to the message, so I've taken a message from Dr Jones to call Mrs such and such because she has a problem. Mm. I've then, I need to put into the patient's records that I've taken the message and that I have passed the message on in the message book or via a message on the screen in the electronic computer software. So that needs to be entered. So I need to be able to show that I've taken the message and I can demonstrate the action I have taken in response to the message. And that is beautiful evidence for the practice manager to use for accreditation. Absolutely. We Again, everything that we need to do, we need to make sure that we can prove that we've done what we've said we would do. So that's very important. The next part of what we need to think about in this criterion is how we communicate with patients who have special needs. These are patients with disabilities, who are not fluent in English, who are deaf. If these patients need to form other, use other forms of communication, we need to consider using other services. And Anne, I'm sure you've probably come across this in your time and have used some of these other services. Yeah, I haven't used the National Relay Service for patients who are deaf, but I have used the TIS and the Translation and Interpreter Service, and it's excellent. It, you know, really is a easy to log on, easy to request, and it's a really good system. Fantastic. So in order to make sure that you have met this criterion... So this is 1.2... You must, there are several things you must do. You must use three approved forms of identification for identifying patients over the phone so that information is given to the correct person. You must document in each patient's health record when team members have attempted to contact the patient, for example, left a message. 
when a patient contacts the practice, the reason for the contact and the advice and the information that the patient was given. So they're all the must. There are some things you could do as well. So you could have a recorded phone message, which may be an introductory message or an on-hold message that tells patients to call 000 if they have an emergency. You can check with your practice manager that you have a policy procedure or flowchart that shows how to manage messages from patients. You could document what information and advice the practice team can and cannot give to patients over the phone or electronically. You could make sure that as reception staff, you understand which messages need to be transferred to the clinical team. And you could have an appointment system that includes time for the clinical team to return messages to the patients. You could also have an automatic email response if your email system allows it that includes the practice, the practice's telephone number and when the sender can expect to receive a reply. And you could also ask your practice manager about establishing a process so that patients are advised of the practice's policy for checking, responding to and sending emails. So this brings Criterion 1.2 to a close and we will be back with Criterion 1.3 on informed patient decisions shortly. Thank you.